Pam, you are a gift. Thank you. Thank you. She goes, don't me, Pam. We love you. Thank you for sharing your gift with us. Have you ever encountered a gatekeeper in your life? I mean in the literal sense. Maybe you know what that term means. Maybe you don't. So, uh, you, you, for instance, you're at a party, and a Beatles song comes on. Trying to cast the net wide right now. A Beatles song comes on, and uh, you know it's uh, eight days a week, and you say, "Oh, I love the Beatles." And someone, the gatekeeper, shows up in that conversation. Oh, you love the Beatles? <laughs> I love the Beatles. You love the Beatles? What's every Beatles song? Name every Beatles song ever written. You love the Beatles, right? What's Paul McCartney's shoe size? You love the Beatles, right? This is George Harrison's second cousin's maiden name. Do you love the Beatles? I love the Beatles, right? So gatekeepers, gatekeeping is this idea of people who seem to make it their life's mission to tell everybody around them how much they are in something and how much you are not, right? It's like their job is to keep certain people out and certain people in of interests or communities. You get the idea. Gatekeepers. So now you have language around the next time someone does something like that to you at a party. Also, find a new party. That's weird. Like, I don't know, um, that interaction. Gatekeeping happens with Beatles music. It also happens, it turns out, in faith. Jesus in... Uh, chapter 13 of Luke's gospel encounters some gatekeepers um, in the life of faith. People who would very much like to make clear who is in and who is out. And guess who's in? Oh, it, it, it's me, right? It's me, right? It's me, right? Um, and what starts as a conversation around gates ends up becoming a conversation about, in a way, compassion. The way that we allow compassion to guide us to consider who is in and who is out, and what our place is in God's order of things. We're continuing in a series called Living Lent, and um, we'll be taking a look during the season of Lent, the season of six weeks preparing for Easter. We're taking a look, a closer look at some stories of Jesus that invite us into the life that he experienced, the kinds of uh, emotions and experiences that he had on this earth, and so that we can Feel what it felt like, perhaps, to walk a mile in his sandals, and the implications for our lives living 2,000 years later. Gospel of Luke chapter 13 is where we're going to be turning our attention. Before we read, though, I want to tell you, there's bookends to this story that help us understand why Jesus is confronting these gatekeepers. Just before what we're about to read and just after, there are these stories of Jesus healing on the Sabbath. The Sabbath was that day of the week that was set aside, reserved for faith and, and for rest and for reflecting upon God. And Jesus had the audacity to perform the, the miracle of healing on the Sabbath day. And that really bothered the gatekeepers in his world. That you would dare to use a day set aside for faith to be used for healing. What's that about? And in between these bookends, Jesus directly confronts and addresses this kind of mentality. Beginning in chapter 13, verse 22, it says this, Jesus traveled through cities and villages, teaching and making his way to Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, 
Will only a few be saved? Pick me, pick me, pick me, pick me. Jesus said to them, Make every effort to enter through the narrow gate. Many, I tell you, will try to enter and won't be able to. Once the owner of the house gets up and shuts the door, then you will stand outside and knock on the door saying, Lord, open the door for us. And he will reply, I don't know you or where you are from. And then you'll begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. And he will respond, I don't know you or where you are from. Go away from me, all you evildoers. There will be weeping and grinding of teeth when you see Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and all the prophets in God's kingdom. But you yourselves will be thrown out. People will come from east and west, from north and south, and sit down to eat in God's kingdom. Look, those who are last will be first. And those who are first will be last. Let's pause there for now. This text is a difficult one to hear at first. Weeping and grinding of teeth. You're like, whoa, this is a really heavy metal Sunday. Um, Let's break it down for a second to understand what Jesus is actually getting out here. Someone approaches Jesus and says, will only a few be saved? This is someone who would very much like for that few to include them, right? Will only a few be saved? And Jesus' response is not simply no. Instead, what Jesus responds with is, you can make every effort to enter by that narrow gate, right? If you want faith to be a narrow path, if if you think that you're standing at a gate saying, "Uh -uh uh-uh-uh, only me and a few of my friends enter in, he says, you can make every effort to enter by that narrow gate, But that's not how people come into the family of faith. Jesus isn't setting up the narrow gate as this thing that he adores or enjoys or that he even was designed by God. In fact, he's saying, you built this thing, not the owner of the house. You put this in place. And if you think that's how you're getting in, you're wrong. Because if it's a narrow gate and only a few people get in and everybody else is shut out, guess what? You're at the wrong party. Jesus says, then you're going to come up to the door and you're going to knock. The owner's going to come to the door and say, I don't know you. By you, he's saying, I I don't know what this kind of faith is. This isn't what I was asking for, this narrow-minded, narrow-gate approach of exclusivity and pushing people away and keeping people out of the party. I I don't know this or where this even came from. And you'll say, but we ate and drank in your presence. You spoke in our streets. And the owner's thinking, did you hear what I said when I spoke in your streets? I didn't say build a narrow gate. And so he replies again, I don't know you. I don't know where this came from. And then there's that weeping and grinding of teeth statement. This is a a refrain throughout the Old and New Testament, though it's used slightly differently uh, depending on where you find it. In the New Testament, this phrase, weeping and grinding, or maybe you've heard weeping and gnashing of teeth, it's sort of this idiom that that gets at someone who who is suffering. Someone who is suffering. He is saying, you who sought to make everybody around you suffer so that you could enter through a narrow gate, guess what? You will experience 
the suffering. You just don't know it yet. You are already suffering. You just don't know it yet because you've devoted your life to gatekeeping a narrow gate. You will be suffering in the end. Please step away from the narrow gate. And then he says people will come from east and west and north and south. If you thought it was a narrow gate, you were wrong. It's a huge, massive party. And you're going to end up being the one on the outside looking in because you convinced yourself the narrow gate was the way inside. And he closes with this line that's repeated throughout the Gospels. The last shall be first and the first shall be last. Now there's a really fancy phrase for this in theology land because we love really fancy obtuse phrases. The eschatological reversal. Say that five times fast, right? What that basically means is the way that in the end, everything changes. The way that God designs the world is an upending of the way that we have structured things. The systems and structures that we have built. The narrow gates that we have put in place to keep people up top even higher and to push people down low even lower. And Jesus says, in the end, those who suffer, those who are last will become first. That's why I've come to be with them. And those who think that they're sitting up top nice and pretty will be brought low. And will be on the outside looking in through a narrow gate. If you thought you were coming to get a simple warm and fuzzy, inspiring message on Spring Forward Sunday, you were wrong. Because here's the truth, my friends. Jesus has come to reorder the world in a compassionate way. Jesus has come to reorder the world in a compassionate way. And compassion sounds like a warm and fuzzy word until we break it down. It comes from the Latin word compati, which means quite literally to suffer with. Jesus comes down to reorder the world in a compassionate way where those who are currently suffering are lifted up and those who don't think they're going to suffer are going to realize it in the end. And we have a choice to make in a reordering like that. We can either continue to sit up top and consider ourselves safe or we can drop low like Jesus and help that reordering come to be. Are you with me, church? This doesn't sit well with those who appreciate the, the way the world is currently ordered, by the way. This might shock you, but turns out some people don't like this concept. Last shall be first, first shall be last. Who's not going to like that, do you think? Story continues in verse 31. At that time, some Pharisees approached Jesus and said, Pharisees, if you don't know, are these religious scholars, some of the religious elite who enjoy being first within their community. Some Pharisees approached Jesus and said, go, get away from here. Go on, get, right? That's how I hear it. Because Herod wants to kill you. Go and get away from here because Herod wants to kill you. And then Jesus said to them, go and tell that fox. Ooh, I love sassy Jesus. <laughs> go and tell that fox, look, I'm throwing out demons and healing people today and tomorrow, and on the third day, I will complete my work. What he's saying is, go tell that fox, I'm busy at the moment. Thank you very much. Sassy Jesus is my third favorite Jesus. Number one is Jesus, Savior of the world. Number two is Jesus flipping tables like a WWE match. Number three is Sassy Jesus. I love Sassy Jesus. Let's stop there for a second. Let's talk about Sassy Jesus. Go and tell that fox. 
There are times when we engage ourselves in compassionate work, born of faith, the kind of work that leads us to heal on the Sabbath, right? To be with those who are suffering. Sometimes that compassionate work will be labeled by those who are in positions of authority as politics. Oh, now we're stepping on toes. Let's get into it. The Pharisees don't come to Jesus and say, go on, get, we don't want you here. They don't come to Jesus and say, go on, get, you're breaking the laws of our religion or what have you. They say, go on, get, because Herod wants to kill you. Now, whether or not that's true is interesting. Maybe Herod didn't say a single thing, and they're just leveraging this name of the governor, the guy who leads and, and is sort of king with a little K over this land that they're in. Uh, maybe they're leveraging his name just to put some fear into Jesus. But maybe Herod really did want to kill Jesus. Because Herod is the governor of this land, and he likes the way the world is ordered. And when you've got a prophet coming to the people saying, the last shall be first and the first shall be last, well, guess what? Head honcho's going to have a problem with that. Sometimes the compassionate work that we are led to in our faith will be, in a, will be taken as an attack to those who sit in positions of power, specifically people who would like to label compassionate work as political. And as people of God, we have to be willing to reclaim and say, I didn't meddle with politics here. You're meddling with my justice, my compassion, and my faith, right? You don't get to dictate how my faith is led. You don't get to reframe this as me subscribing to a political party. This is me living out my faith, healing on the Sabbath, doing holy work out of a position of compassion. You can call it whatever you want. Go tell that fox I'm busy. When the governor of our state says that trans children ought to be attacked and their families taken away from them, go tell that fox that we are busy casting out demons and healing on the Sabbath. Do you hear me, church? There are times when our compassionate work will be labeled as politics and as faithful Christians, we have the right I would dare say the duty to reclaim the language of faith and to be willing to answer to an authority higher than the authorities that may exist in our lives. Here's a question for all of us to consider. When the authority of God's compassion confronts the authorities of our life, who will win? And in case you're thinking I'm reading too much into this text, when Jesus says he's casting out demons, just a few chapters ago in the Gospel of Luke, he casts out a demon. Do you know what that demon's name is? Legion. It is in no uncertain terms a symbol of the Roman occupation of his land. Jesus is not afraid to directly confront Herod and say, I'm casting out demons. When we are confronted by authorities in our, of our life, when God's compassionate authority conflicts and confronts with authorities around us, who wins? Whose authority do we follow? Because to quote Bob Dylan, you got to serve somebody, right? You got to serve somebody. Who's going to win in that conflict? Now, friends, last week we talked about God's not looking for perfect disciples, and we are not going to be perfect disciples. I ask that question because I fail in that question far too often. Authorities in my life win. I grow quiet. I don't act. Because it's really hard to stand up, even to kings with little Ks. 
But the question still remains. And if we're going to be Christians of any worth or any value, then we've got to be Christians who are willing to be convicted in those moments when the questions loom large. And we say, Lord, here we go. Sometimes God's compassionate authority is going to conflict with the authorities in our, of our life. And we, we have to be willing to do that intentional, difficult, soul-searching work of saying, who's going to win in, that, in this moment? Will I devote my life? Will I put skin in the game? in the name of God's compassionate authority in this world. But the story's not done yet. Jesus isn't just calling out Herod. In fact, Jesus' strongest words are for his own people. He continues and says, however, it's necessary for me to travel today, tomorrow, and the next day, because it's impossible for a prophet to be killed outside of Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who were sent to you. How often I have wanted to gather your people just as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you didn't want that. Look, your house is abandoned. I tell you, you won't see me until the time comes when you say, blessings on the one who comes in the Lord's name. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, he says. Jesus' final lament, final confrontation is, is not for the man who asks him who's in or who's out. It's not even for Herod, but it's for the holy city. This place that was meant to be the house of God, the house of faith, the wellspring of life, the place where God's upending of the order of things was to begin. Jerusalem was meant to be different. It was meant to be faithful. It was meant to be just. And instead, it reflected and even emphasized, exacerbated the problems of the world around it where the first were even more so and the last were even lower. Jerusalem, Jerusalem. It's impossible, he says, for a prophet to be killed outside of Jerusalem because it's when you go to Jerusalem and you say as a person of faith something stinks in the house of the Lord, that's when you get stoned. Sometimes it's our religious structures, our churches, who when confronted by holy truth-tellers, rather than allowing ourselves to be convicted and changed, rather than allowing ourselves to shine a light on the sin that has infected and plagued our own systems and structures, instead we try to silence the truth-tellers. We try to silence them rather than address our sin. Jesus says everything is backwards here in this holy city. And if you think we're still talking about Jerusalem, let's jump into the 21st century. He says something is wrong within our churches, within our religion. Everything is backwards. We invite the foxes in and we push the mother hens out. What is going on in Jerusalem? Jesus is perhaps most frustrated with the church because it's the place that is meant to operate in that compassionate reordering that comes with the kingdom of God. And so when we seem to reflect or even amplify the broken systems of the world around us, Jesus reminds us that the stone cast at prophets today sits in our hands. And what will we do, church? Are we a home that is hospitable to the mother hens, to the prophets who will call us to something better, or will we stone them in an effort to keep things that the way that they are? Hmm. 
Compassion is not simply charity. Jerusalem had charity for days. Helping people with their present day needs, attending to uh, feeding people and providing for whatever it is that they needed that day. But compassion is not strictly charity. It's not simply handing down to those who are lower what you think they need. Compassion is systemic. It's changing the first and the last. It's reordering the world the way that God would intend it. It's risky, it's confrontational, and it starts with allowing ourselves and our faith to draw near to the suffering in this world. And here's the hardest part about talking about compassion is it means that we have to be willing to embrace suffering in a real and life-changing way. It's not something we like to do, especially not in American culture where everything is always good all the time and only getting better, my friend. And in American churches where everything is really always good and really all the time and always getting better, amen? Don't amen that. Um, (laughs) Compassion starts with allowing ourselves and our faith to draw near to the suffering in the world, to allow another person's suffering to become our own. Remember that Latin root, compati, to suffer with. It's not simply to look down and say, I'm sorry. It's to climb down and say, I'm with you. I'll be honest, I haven't always been good at compassion in my life. Especially when it comes to suffering in a physical way. My family is lucky to have good genetics and a lot of people live a long time in my family. Two of my grandparents are still alive. I was, I had three great grandparents alive when I was born, right? So I, I didn't spend a lot of time in hospitals or, or with people who were suffering in a physical way as a kid. And maybe it's for that reason that pastoral care never came naturally to me early on as a pastor, right? It was not an environment that I was used to. And over years, I've gotten somewhat better at it. But I'll be frank, in the last 18 months of being with you, the people of Arapaho, I've learned how to be more caring and compassionate as a pastor because that is, in the, that is woven into the fabric of who we are here. We care about people a lot. I see that. I see that. Judy sends hand-signed birthday cards to everybody in the church. It's insane. She said, this is part of your job. You have to sign. I said, what? We're signing birthday cards? Yes, we do that. Y'all are crazy. (laughs) In a really cool way. But there's a depth to that compassion. And it it, it came to me to fruition in in a potent way yesterday. We had in this space a memorial service for a man named Kelly Bristow. And I met Kelly and his wife Leah in a little Zoom box like this, huddled up next to each other on a grid during one of those Zoom listening sessions that many of you participated in with me. Isn't that a great way to meet your pandemic pastor back in July of 2020? And I knew I was going to like them from the start, mainly because Leah's got purple hair, if you don't know her. I just thought, she looks cool. I want to be friends with them. They came to everything, even though Kelly and Lee had only gotten here recently in the life of the church. They only got here a little bit before I did, quite frankly. I figured they'd been here forever, because they come to everything, everything, everything in the church. So I got to know their names very quickly. Parking lot communion, outdoor worship, pumpkin patch. This past, uh, around this time last year, we, we prayed for Kelly out there on this green space. Several of you were, were with us. 
We laid hands upon Kelly and prayed for him because he was facing a diagnosis and a procedure that were scary. He was facing cancer in his life, and, and he was holding that fear and anxiety as anybody would, but um, he was also holding a peace and comfort that came from knowing he was not alone. And so I began to visit with Kelly um, about once a month, once every six weeks to see how he was doing. And then his cancer got stronger and the treatments proved less effective and the experimental options weren't available to him. And so our meetings picked up the pace once every three weeks, once every two weeks. And, and this man whom I first started to, to get to be with because I was providing pastoral care was quickly becoming a friend and I was watching my friend begin to waste away. Cancer sucks. And then it got so bad that we started having a weekly Friday morning time blocked off. And, and sometimes we'd meet for an hour, sometimes we'd meet for five. Because one thing about Kelly is you could just talk to him. The guy was brilliant. He had the ability to mix science and faith and antique radios and microscopes and SpaceX and also Jesus together. He would have notes for me about my sermon I'd just preached we talked about that too. Sitting next to him in that armchair, it was harder for him. I could see it in his body. He had a hard time getting up towards the end. He needed assistance. He, we sat and we'd talk. We'd sit and we'd just cry. It's really hard to gain and lose a friend in a year. But I am so grateful for Kelly's life. And I am so grateful for Kelly's witness. And I am so grateful to have sat in an armchair next to him for as long as I got to. And it's hard. And I'll miss him. And suffering is not fun. And watching and sitting with someone who's suffering is not fun. But it is life-changing. It is faith deepening. And Kelly's made me a heck of a better pastor as a result. I know who Jesus is better today because I sat next to Kelly. Because God led me to a place that honestly I was uncomfortable with. And showed me how compassion can be the heart of what we do. And when we open ourselves up, when we step away from narrow gates and into open arms, when we allow compassion to not just change the world, but also to change us, when we are willing to follow God's authority of compassion into any and every space of our lives and to confront that which needs confronting, especially ourselves, compassion, it'll change you, it's changed me. It'll change the world. Amen.